The sound of the Puyuma tribe on Radio Taiwan International. Ladies and gentlemen, here's Shirley Lin with In the Spotlight. Welcome to In the Spotlight. I'm Shirley Lin. Holly Harrington is a startup consultant. She's from Maryland and has been in Taiwan for 13 years. The thing I remember the most from her interview last week is how she learned Chinese pretty much on her own. She loves listening to Chinese songs, going to KTVs and picking Chinese songs to sing, of course, and going to live concerts in Taiwan. She even purposely moved to areas where there are no foreigners living in the neighborhood. Today, she will talk more about what she's been doing work-wise for 13 years in Taiwan. Well, work-wise, uh, I did teach in a, a cram school, you know, little kids for a year. But I later went to the Princeton Review and I was there for six or seven years teaching high school and college students things like SAT and TOEFL. Um, we also had LSAT and SSAT for kids that wanted to go to high schools in the U.S. And that was really great because I learned so much about English, which helped me learn about Chinese. Oh. Um, and I'm learning French right now. And it's actually it's helping me with that, too, because I understand English grammar and just grammar in general way better than I did before ever having to teach it. Um, but it wasn't just about English. It was also, you know, I taught history and uh, I created a debate class, which was one of my favorite things that I did there. Um, because in the U.S., you know, education is so interactive. We have to defend our positions all the time. Um, and it was a hard sell for parents, actually, in Taiwan, um, that, you know, why do they need this? This is not a hard subject. But you have to be able to present your ideas, think about the opposition and how they are going to refute you. Um, and it was so great to see these kids that were, you know, 15, 16 years old, talking about stuff like gay marriage, or should marijuana be legalized, or, mm. or these kinds of topics. Um, but also things like genetic testing, and should we be allowed to design genes for babies in the future and things, oh, and to get their minds working. And, um, you know, that's something that I think Taiwanese education doesn't do quite as well yeah. as the US. After I got my permanent residence in Taiwan, uh, I left the company and I just started figuring out what else I can do. Um, I was an artist for a while doing the weekend artist markets. What kind of art though? Polymer clay jewelry. I was in a studio okay. in Dihua Street and mm -hmm. with a few other um, artists. So also we had, foreigners? Nope. Uh, oh, okay. I was the only one. Um, huh. Actually, one of them is a comic artist, Michi Man, Mickey Man, okay. who does these really great comics. And he has these stickers that I had always seen. And so it was like, oh, I know you. Like, you're, you're sort of <laughs> famous. It was really cool because I got to see a lot of other, um, well, 
a lot of Taiwanese artists mm-hmm. that were um, in their early stages as well. And in some of them, and this has been at least six years ago, um, some of them, now I see their their brands or I see, oh, wow. you know, I, I actually have a friend who is Taiwanese but lives in the U.S. now. And she discovered one of these friends' brands. Uh, and she's like, oh, I need to, to go and buy something at this store. And then I went there like, oh, it's it's your shop. And so this just totally, totally a fan of, of this brand now. So it was really cool to see, you know, all these young people that were following their passions, um, which was so different from at the Princeton Review, because I would have students there getting ready to go to college in the U.S., and I would ask them, like, you know, what do you want to study in college? And often their response would start with, well, my parents want me to study whatever. And if I press them, like, well, what, you know, what do, what you, do you want to do? do? Yeah. You know, they would be very reluctant to, mm. to share that. Um, mm. And so it was pretty rewarding to do, you know, the artist stuff. But again, it didn't make a lot of money. Um, luckily, I, I grew up with limited means, so I know how to live with or without money, I guess. <laughs> but then I did start doing other things. So I started doing a lot of social media marketing translation, and I got my first sort of opportunity to get paid for that um, by my mentor and uh, his partner, Zhu Ping and Ming, who were running Non-Zero, which was their restaurant, mm-hmm. um, and asked me, you know, why don't you try and take this on? And it was really great. And it was great practice. And then I just started meeting a lot of startup companies that, mm-hmm. um, you know, small tech companies saying, hey, can you can you do that for us too? We want to reach English speakers. Um, and so I just started getting hired, slowly became a, a startup person. Right, a startup um, consultant. Which was, which was great because mm-hmm. I, I love apps. I love technology. I have, you know, all the Apple products. Um, I have, you know, I have way more apps and things on my phone than any of my friends. <laughs> um, I use technology so much. So it was really cool to see things kind of early before it was really big and popular and to have the first crack at like this new game that's coming out or this new app. And then that led to my more recent job, which was with Taiwan Startup Stadium. Uh, And that started in 2015. And I've just recently left after some really amazing years working with startups under the National Development Council. So Mm. that's that's who funds that program. uh, Part of the government, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a a ministry level um, National Development Council, and they put together a three year program. The official third year is coming to an end um, soon. And then the next period will be coming up starting in 2019. Um, So now is a good time for me to sort of step away. It was just so, so rewarding because it allowed me to bring in so many of the skills that I had gained Uh because, you know, marketing and teaching. The first program we ever did was teaching startup founders from Taiwan who wanted to apply to overseas accelerators, Mm -hmm. um, which are things like Y Combinator, Techstars, 500 Startups. They're kind of like college for startups. They're usually a three-month program and they get on average about a hundred thousand US dollars investment and it ends with a, a demo day in front of big investors okay which will hopefully help them grow so right. Airbnb you know a lot of these companies came out of accelerators so our first program uh, and this was a lot of my role in the very beginning was um, to teach the startups you know how to do this and it was so similar to helping kids apply to college in the US so I was able to use that as as a sort of background for how can I teach effectively 
but also um, make it interesting and build relationships and make them want to do the work. Uh, and then started taking them abroad too. Mm -hmm. So going to overseas conferences in San Francisco and New Orleans, uh, wow. in Hong Kong, in Tokyo. Yeah, they need uh, that. You know, get a yeah. world vision. If you only show vision. your product to your friends in Taiwan, mm -hmm. They're always going to support you. We just went to TechCrunch in San Francisco in September. There's hundreds of other startups there from all over the world. Because you're in Taiwan, you think you are so special. It's something I love about Taiwan, but also that frustrates me is that everyone is so supportive. Um, the media also is like you are Taiwan Zuguang, like you're the pride of Taiwan. Every, everyone is the, yeah, the pride of Taiwan. Yeah, and like oh, you have this amazing thing, but actually, actually it's not that special right. and. You go to this conference and there's five other companies with your exact same product, uh -huh. just with a different name and a few different features. And you realize that, you know, Taiwan is not alone in the world. There are right. people just like you everywhere. You're listening to In the Spotlight with Shirley Lin. I know I asked you to prepare a story that has made an impact on you. Actually, the story itself, you know, sort of happened here in Taiwan, but it's a, a lifetime story, okay. um, which is that I grew up as a, you know, as a in the gifted and talented programs in school, and I always did very well. Um, I did. I actually had to take the SATs when I was twelve. I would because I scored well on some standardized tests, um, and I got some sort of award for distinction. Like I was a smart kid, uh -huh. um, but as I got older and older, I was so irresponsible and immature. And I changed my major so many times in college. I would pick up hobbies and drop them just as quickly. Um, and as you can see from my, my career history, also, you know, I, <laughs> I so colorful. always changing, <laughs> right. And so people are like, wow, you were so accomplished. I'm like, no, it's just because I, I got bored. Um, you know, I've done singing and, and writing and voice and acting art. and art <laughs> and all these things. Um, I actually got to a point several years ago where I was so frustrated with myself because here I am, I'm an adult, I'm over 30, my mom's in the US, I don't have family in Taiwan, so there's nobody sort of watching over me. Why can't I, you know, act like an adult and pay my bills on time? Why can't I keep my house in order? Uh, my house is always a mess. You know, why don't I take better care of my health? Like, I have a problem with my tooth. Like, why can't I just make myself go to the dentist? I spent a lifetime sort of blaming myself for not being able to follow through on things because I knew that, you know, changing my major was great because it made me more well-rounded. But it also meant that, you know, I was this jack-of-all-trades, master-of-none kind of person. Um, and I was seeing friends achieve things in their careers and getting higher and higher. And here I am just sort of drifting around. But even more so, just, you know, not meeting deadlines, paying my bills, all these things. And I thought, you know, am I depressed? Is there something wrong with me emotionally? Um, I went to see a doctor. I tried some, like, antidepressants and things and um, just to see. And I, I didn't feel like I was depressed, but I just... Like, why, why can I not just take care of myself better? Frustration. Yeah. And I was just angry all the time at myself. I ultimately decided, like, you know, the antidepressant is not working. Um, and then I read an article that was by a, a startup investor in the U.S. who talked about how um, ADD or ADHD 
is actually really great for entrepreneurs. Oh, and okay. I've, you think everybody would know what ADD is, right? Right. Okay. All right. Um, we don't have but, to like spell it out. Yeah. Well, I I think some people have misconceptions about it. Mm-hmm. So, um, and also because there is a little bit of difference between ADD and ADHD. ADHD. So, attention deficit disorder and attention deficit hyperactivity Hyper. mm-hmm. disorder. When I was a small kid, I I was called hyper a lot, but um, <laughs> I I don't think I'm particularly hyper, but Mm -hmm. it turned out that I was very similar to this investor um, in that I have attention deficit disorder. And I, I spent, you know, more than three decades not realizing that that was actually what was driving all of this um, lack of commitment. But he was right that if you are someone with ADD, you actually do get a lot of advantages because you become powered by novelty. So if something is new to you, you're just so excited and you can absorb it so fast. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I mostly taught myself Chinese, but that's a lot of it powered by the ADD. Like I'm just trying to just cram knowledge in. And also why I was constantly changing majors, why I'm always happy to try new things. But then once I've, you know, achieved a little bit, then I just want to move on. Uh Um, But in the end, that's actually made me a really well-rounded person because my, you know, with my job, I started out doing our marketing and ended as a general manager. And I, you know, did design, I did film editing, I did our social media, I did educational programs, mentoring, I did PR, um, and later did management and HR and, you know, all of these kinds of things. But I wouldn't have been able to be in that role if I hadn't gone through so many different sort of past roles. A few years ago, so once I started understanding, I started reading about ADD, and I went to a doctor, gave me a test, started me on a small dose of medicine, um, and immediately things started to change a little bit to the point where my colleague who sat next to me, mm-hmm. who I was constantly distracting, he also noticed it. Like, yeah, you've been oh. a lot more focused, Like, um, which was great because it wasn't just good for me. It was good for other people. What I'm seeing coming in the future, like I really want to help people get over the stigma of things like ADD and anxiety, which is something else that I, I deal with, especially in Taiwan. You know, in the US, everybody has a therapist. Um, <laughs> but in Taiwan, very, very few people are willing to sort of talk about um, it. Yeah. yeah. And and so by me talking about it, it sort of opens people up. It's changed my life a lot. It's, yeah. you know, I, I'm still scattered, but I'm not so mad at myself and mm. I'm not so unhappy because I, I know what's causing it. Well, regardless of how you are, Holly, <laughs> you've already accomplished a lot in your life. <laughs> it's great hearing your story. So, well, good luck with whatever you're pursuing. And no matter what you do, I'm sure you'll be happy at what you're doing. And you've done a lot for yourself. And, <laughs> and, and by that, you're helping a lot of people around you. So yeah, thanks for having you in Taiwan. That's oh, what I'd say, Holly. Well, thank you for having this show. I'm yeah. glad to share kind of a message. Your 13 years in Taiwan has been just enriching, I'm sure. Yeah. yeah thank you, Holly. Uh, thank you thanks. so much. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. 
Classic Shorts: Stories from Chinese History and Literature. Hello and welcome to Classic Shorts. I'm Natalie So. Let me tell you a story about a rich man who did a very foolish thing that turned into a Chinese idiom. China, there was a wealthy man named Han Shu. He had a beautiful home where he loved to entertain, and he prided himself in showing off his wealth. He had lots of it, and the pride of his possessions was his rare collection of vases. Every time a guest would come to his home, he would ask them, "Have you ever seen my collection of beautiful antique vases?" Knowing how wealthy Han Shu was, and that he had impeccable taste, his guests would always be curious to see what he had collected. Han Shu was, of course, more than happy to show off his art collection. One day, he took a friend to see his antique vases, and as usual, he bragged about them. I've collected them for decades. Many are made of precious jewels and are even from the royal palace. This, of course, piqued his friend's curiosity, and Han Shu had a favorite vase that he believed was truly the most exquisite one he's ever seen. Let me show you my most prized possession. That vase is made of the beautiful jade. Just as he was speaking, though, something didn't seem quite right. There was a feeling in the air. Actually, it was a furry little gray rodent running. Right around that jade vase. That's because Han Shu had left some food there carelessly just that morning. He was shocked to see such a dirty creature so near his precious work of art.、Uh, what's that running around my precious jade vase? A mouse! Ugh, I can't believe it! You rodent! Take that! Hanshu actually threw a rock at the mouse. It did hit the mouse, but oh, oh no! I killed the mouse, but I broke my favorite vase. Oh, what have I done? <laughs> Don't ever burn your house to get rid of a mouse. I can't believe I did this to my favorite vase. <laughs> That jade vase was one of a kind. I'll never have anything like it again.、Mm. Classic Chinese phrases and idioms.
There's a classic Chinese idiom that refers to the foolish rich man Han Shu, who threw a rock to kill a rat and ended up breaking his favorite vase. It's called "throw mouse, avoid wear." It actually describes someone who wants to do something but who is afraid of the effects it may have on something else, like breaking your vase. Nowadays, you can use it like this: just tell him what he needs to hear. Throw mouse, avoid wear. Don't worry about his reaction. Or you could say this: I want to fire this person. But I'm throw mouse avoid wear. I'm not sure how she will react, or how that would affect the whole team. Or you could say, moving to another country is such a major decision. I'm not sure how it would affect our family. I'm throw mouse avoid wear. I do want to go and take this great new job there, but I don't know if my family can adjust to the new country. You could also say the police know that the hostages are in that house, but the criminals are armed, so their throw mouse avoid wear. They're afraid if they storm in, the kidnappers might kill the hostages. So that's another idiom story for you. Throw mouse, avoid wear. It describes being afraid of the consequences of doing something that it might affect someone else in a negative way. Thanks for tuning in to Classic Shorts. I'm Natalie So. The sound of the Puyuma tribe on Radio Taiwan International. Today's time traveler is John Van Trieste, and the destination Daxi. The town of Daxi was once among northern Taiwan's wealthiest centers of trade. Though its fortunes fell drastically over the course of the 20th century, the town has since made a comeback with tourism an important economic driver. Much of Daxi's appeal lies in its well-preserved streetscapes, lined with ornate buildings that are still the pride of its citizens. The old stone and brick buildings that tourists come to see look like they're frozen in time. That is a well-crafted illusion. As time went on, the old buildings came to be plastered with modern shop signs, and as the local economy tanked, some began to crumble. Daxi's success in restoring its old streets is partly thanks to the work of dedicated locals who gathered to form the Daxi Historic Neighborhood Reconstruction Association. What was behind Daxi's rise, fall, and recovery? What makes the town's buildings special, 
and why do locals treasure them so much? Here to tell us is the association's Li Yilan. Daxi sits by the Dahan Creek, a river that flows into the Taipei Basin and from there out to sea. In the 19th century, river access to the markets of what's now Taipei and access from there to the wider world turned Daxi into what Ms. Li calls an inland port. Goods like agricultural produce would be shipped downriver, but Ms. Li says that in the 19th and early 20th centuries, it was above all camphor that made Daxi's fortune. Camphor was the wonder material of its day, used for everything from smokeless gunpowder and medicine to film and plastic-like materials. The camphor trees of Taiwan's north were then one of the world's richest sources of the material. The town celebrated its wealth. Commerce continued to boom after 1895, when Japan took control of Taiwan. People started getting with the times, adopting the latest building style transmitted from the West by Japanese architects who'd studied abroad and wanted to use Taiwan as a place to experiment. The new buildings that went up in places like Daxi had carved stone plaques above the entrances, announcing shop names. The buildings were covered in ornate carvings, leading up to elaborate gables up top. This style is called Baroque in Taiwan, but this fashion was far removed from the much older European style that gave it its name. When it came to homes and shops especially, Taiwan's Baroque was a hybrid style. Alongside borrowed Western features were local elements, carved Chinese characters, auspicious designs, and even local mythical creatures like the Qilin. The stone carvings are lively and feature lots of plants. Number 20 on Heping Street, for instance, has a gable with the kind of flourishes of leaves and ribbons that you might expect to see on the frontispiece of an old book. This is a 19th-century building that had its façade redone in 1912. The gable also features a few carved letters from the Latin alphabet, an exotic touch that it shares with some other old buildings in Daxi. Number 24 on the same street has a peacock atop its rounded gable. The design of the gable also borrows from another local tradition, visual punning. Certain objects are included as symbols, standing in for positive qualities that share a similar sound. For instance, on number 24, you'll find plenty of flower vases, because the characters for vase and peace sound alike. If you look very carefully, you can also see another mythical creature, the wealth-bringing toad, thought to attract money. Daxi's old streets show the Taiwanese Baroque at its flashiest and most crowded. Eventually, times changed. Later in the 20th century, Baroque buildings were no longer the fashion. The camphor boom had ended, and so had Daxi's place in big global markets. In 1945, Japanese rule came to an end as well. But still, Daxi prospered. Ms. Li says the town had a long history of woodworking and Daxi's craftsmen made furniture and other objects used in traditional dowries that sold well elsewhere. The 1970s brought tourism. 
Chiang Kai-shek had always shown a particular interest in the Dashi area, and after his death in the 1970s, his mausoleum was built nearby too. Ms. Li says all this made other people pay attention to Dashi, and so people came and spent money. Taiwan's economy was taking off, and Dashi's with it. Then things changed. Woodworkers started investing their money abroad, in places with lower wages, and the items they exported back to Taiwan left local craftspeople unable to compete. By the 1990s, Ms. Lee remembers, the town seemed dead, and some of its graceful old buildings were falling into a bad state. Certainly, the look of the old streets wasn't very appealing anymore. Modern shop signs were tacked on to many buildings. Above each entrance was a beautifully carved stone plaque, but many shops they advertised likely no longer existed, and general disrepair didn't help things. Ms. Lee says even those who wanted to do some fixing up found out how hard it was to get a hold of the old-school craftsmen who could actually do the job. In the end, through the 1980s and 90s, many Baroque buildings were simply knocked down. Rumors of a street-widening project made it look like many more would meet the wrecking ball. It wasn't until 1996 that things finally turned for the better. One concerned local decided the time for action had come. They brought in architecture professor Zheng Zefeng to come up with a plan. Zheng arrived in Dashi, set up a workshop, and set about convincing people that these old buildings were worth saving. A project began not only to save the old buildings, but also to get local people to rediscover their beauty. He succeeded, and Ms. Li says 48 Baroque buildings still stand in Dashi as a testament to this. The campaign started with the removal of the modern signs, restoring the buildings to their original look. Locals also took matters into their own hands. 1996 saw the founding of Ms. Li's organization. The Dashi Historic Neighborhood Reconstruction Association got even more experts to come. These professors had lectures and classes about the importance of this architecture and what its intricate designs all mean. Local people had grown up with these designs all around them, but after a few generations, they'd forgotten the stories and the significance. Eventually, the association started training tour guides. It was at this stage that Ms. Lee got involved, and since starting out as a secretary, she's moved all the way up to the position of chairperson. With both passionate locals and skilled craftsmen on board with the project, the association has done a lot in its more than 20 years. Ms. Lee says what's really important is the sense of pride local people have in their buildings. She says the people inside them today know the histories of their buildings and the once forgotten meaning of the Baroque flourishes that make them special. These days, they also think consciously about the building's original look. People no longer just tack things like signs on, and any work that needs to be done will take historic Dashi's look into account and respect it. The association's work over more than 20 years has paid off for Dashi as a whole. Today, tourists from around Taiwan are back once again, thronging the old streets to browse vendor stalls, enjoy the town's signature dried tofu, and to take in the historic atmosphere. 
Not content with this success, the association has new goals now. Among them, bringing back the old art of woodworking that once fueled the town's prosperity. Spearheaded by many old craftsmen who joined up with the association early on, this movement involves opening classes, teaching people about a different part of Dashi's forgotten past. With the association and Ms. Lee to look after it, Dashi's heritage is in good hands. I'm John Van Trieste, and I hope you'll join me again next week for another journey through time. All it takes is a click to listen to RTI Online. Get exercise for your finger and exercise for your mind at english.rti.org.tw. back in a different way than some of the international media are putting it out as a vote about cross-strait relations. And I think that's pretty misguided. I think the election has very little to do with cross-strait relations, actually. Um, it's very much focused on domestic issues and people's dissatisfaction with things that are happening domestically. Hello and welcome to this week's On the Line, brought to you by Radio Taiwan International. I'm Carlson Wong. President Chai Ing-wen stepped down as the chairperson of the ruling Democratic Progressive Party, or DPP, after the party suffered a major defeat in the 9-in-1 elections that just concluded on November 24th. The KMT, or the Nationalist Party, swept to a landslide victory, winning the southern city of Kaohsiung and the northeastern city of Yilan, two cities that have been strongly supported by DPP voters. DPP's number of mayors and county magistrates fall from 13 to 6 in Taiwan's 22 cities and counties. The KMT won 15 cities and counties and incumbent Ke Wenzhe, an independent, was re-elected in Taipei mayoral election. And joining us for the discussion today is Bo Tedders, Director of International Cooperation Department of Taiwan Democracy Foundation. Bo, how do you view the just-concluded 9-in-1 elections in Taiwan? Would you say that this is a major setback for the ruling party, the DPP? Well, of course it's a setback. I mean, if you lose lots of seats, that's a setback. The, um, what, what I would say, though, um, is it's a setback in a different way than some of the international media are putting it out as uh, a vote about cross-strait relations. And I think that's pretty misguided. I think the election has very little to do with cross-strait relations, actually. Um, it was very much focused on domestic issues and people's dissatisfaction with things that are happening domestically. And they put the blame on the ruling government and decided to vote with their uh, either vote against or to not go and vote at all. Yes, Bo, you just made a point. Some say the victory of the KMT is because voters are disappointed in the DPP, not because uh, they trust the KMT again. You know, you punish one party by voting another. Do you agree on that? In this case, I do do agree. I mean, the government, uh, I mean, any government will get blamed for whatever is going on. So the task of the government is to persuade the people that that, uh, that they care about the problems and that they are doing their best to solve them. And if they haven't solved them, it's, there's a structural reason. You have to explain it to the people. And the DVP just basically has not done a good job on this front. I mean, they've had uh, the botched labor market reform is the clearest example. I mean, just uh, 
where he ended up offending both sides. Um, you know, so in this kind of case, people are not thinking that it seems like the government is either either not caring or doesn't know what to do about their problems, and therefore they decided to give the other people a chance. Who do you think is to blame? You know, because um, actually the DPP has done. Uh, quite a few reforms in just about two years, but mm. the public does not seem to understand what the reforms are all about. Right, so that's part of it. So part of uh, what I was saying is, I mean, in some cases, like the labor market reform, it was just it was just botched, right? But in other cases, like the pension reform and things, it was a positive reform if we look at it objectively. But um, so the problem is. Uh, a lot of it is problem is of communication. The government has done a bad job of of uh, communicating to the people of why these are important and why they need to be done in this particular way. They've just done a fairly bad job of communicating that in general. Um, so a lot of the uh, a lot of the voters don't didn't really believe it that it was happening that it was going to have the beneficial effects that in theory it might have. Communication is one problem. Internally, what do you think went wrong on the part of the DPP? Do you think the DPP is divided in a way? Uh, well, every large party is somehow divided because they try to reach out over a, you know, a fairly wide spectrum of the society. So only very small parties can afford to be laser-focused on a niche. Um, that's generally true of all democratic countries, right? So. Yep. Um, there's always a, a little bit of a back and forth. I mean, you can see the Democratic Party in the U.S. or the Republican Party, for that matter, swinging back and forth between sort of moderate wings and, and flank wings. Um, so that's, that's to be expected anywhere. But the question is, do you get the right balance that is appealing to enough voters? And that's what the DVP did not get, has not gotten so far in these two years. But some say that it's also because of uh, the different factions that still exist within the party. For example, the new tight faction uh, mm. plays a major role, and uh, some actually the public put the blame on the new tight faction. What do you yeah. think? I think that's uh, that's a kind of an old scapegoat that is rolled out continuously by. Uh, by various people as a, to explain all, all the ills of the DVP. Every time the DVP has a mistake, it must be the new tide faction's fault. Um, I think it's really unwarranted, actually. It's, it's, a, it's a red herring. The factions are not organized factions so much as tendencies. There are people in the DVP who are more conservative or more progressive in ideology. There are people who are more pro-business, and there are others that are more pro-labor. It's this kind of division that is definitely present in the party, more than organized factions. You know, so they disagree on policy choices. They disagreed on the labor reform. Should they go, should they do it in a pro-business way or in a pro-labor way? There was genuine disagreement within the party about that. Um, and instead of fixing it first internally and presenting a beautiful finished package, they let the whole thing play out in public and turn into a big uh, political mess. You're listening to On The Line, brought to you by Radio Taiwan International. I'm Carlson Wong, and today I'm speaking with Mr. Bo Tedders, the Director of International Cooperation Department of Taiwan Democracy Foundation. What signal do you think it sends to the DPP as this time they lost some important pro-DPP cities such as Kaohsiung and Yilan? 
Oh, yeah. I mean, it's obviously an embarrassing, you know, uh, 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 it just uh, highlighted the embarrassing level of the defeat that you're losing in places where you shouldn't have lost. And I think, you know, they really need to think uh, more carefully about the candidate selection in some pl- some places. But really, they need to just decide on a clearer vision and push forward for it. That's what, that's what would be my suggestion. The mayor-elect of Kaohsiung, Han Guoyu of the KMT, made big gains in just six months in public support. What do you think contributed to his popularity, which led him to win? Well, part of it is that, uh, I mean, we talk about the Han wave. There is kind of a wave. He's riding a general wave of, of uh, global populism, right? I mean, his phenomenon is, is similar in a way. Everywhere. It's similar in a way to, to President Trump. President Trump was never involved in politics before. And, uh, in fact, Hangul has, been involved, has more political experience than Trump did and had, right? Um, so, but he just sort of, by uh, saying things that he, normally we would think, oh, that's politically incorrect, you shouldn't say that. But somehow you get more popular by say, the more you say them, <laughs> in a way. So, so Hangul is benefiting from that new style of sort of social media populist politics. Most of the other KMT candidates were more traditional candidates, right? And he's and different. He was, he was the one who was really different. So, in, and he's also like in a local metaphor. He's he's quite similar in that way to Mayor Ke in Taipei four years ago. He, again, he was this guy who seemed to be willing to say anything, and he benefited from a big wave of sudden wave of popularity as well in Taipei. So it's very similar to that victory, if you put it in a Taiwanese context. Mm-hmm. You know, people thought the KMT, uh, Taipei was a totally safe seat for the KMT, and here comes this guy out of nowhere, basically, I mean, Mayor Ke, who was he before, right? And he suddenly became, uh, and he, you know, defeated the KMT candidate one-on-one, and, and, and right, people couldn't, didn't believe it. So this, now the same thing has happened in Kaohsiung. But also some say that disinformation or the Chinese election interference played a part. Do you think so? Oh, undoubtedly it played a part. I mean, I think the, the people who are saying that it's, a, that it's hysteria are, are kidding themselves. I mean, China has the resources and the desire to do, to do so, to interfere in Taiwan's democracy, right? They have motive and opportunity. It'll be hard to find too much evidence, I guess, although some of the tech people will try to you know, track down the locations of websites and so forth. Um, it'll be hard to find evidence of direct collusion. Like, even even in, in the, the US. U.S., they've had trouble actually pinning collusion. Like, we can see that the Russian disinformation campaign was benefiting Trump, but it's hard to prove that the Trump campaign was working with them, right? That, mm-hmm. that, that's, that's what the Mueller investigation is trying to work on, and it's hard. So maybe they didn't, but you can see that the Russians were putting their influence on one side of the scale. And you can see the Chinese obviously prefer KMT candidates to win. The Chinese media has been static about the results and portraying it as a 100% you know, win for China's cross-strait policy. So obviously they, they, they felt they would benefit and they had the resources to do it. So it would be silly to say that they weren't doing it and we should take it as a warning for future elections. If they think it works, they're going to do it again more next time. Because 2020 presidential election is just actually a little over a year away. Yeah. So what do you think that the government of Taiwan should do to stop the spread of uh, disinformation on social media in particular? I, I, honestly, I don't think any government in the world has figured out exactly what to do about this. It doesn't work unless it convinces voters, right? So the thing is, how are the voters going to get uh, the the message that they should support the government. 
um, if the voters are getting that message, even though they're getting a whole bunch of other noise on, on social media, maybe it will work out. If they're not getting that message because it's being drowned out by the social media, then that's a problem. And I don't really know how we can address that. I was hoping there's something that can be done with, uh, with more transparency on paid political advertisements on, uh, on, on social media, on Facebook and so forth. Uh, I know some people are studying that in Europe uh, and I hope that, and in America, and I hope that we can get something like that in place. But I wonder, I, I really w- seriously wonder if it could be in place in time for the next election. I mean, it's only yeah, say, a year away. In just one year. Yeah. If President Chai Ing-wen wants to secure a second term, what do you think the PPP, the DPP should do to boost the morale and win the support of the people again? Well, I mean, after she's won the second term, then she'll have another four years to, to do so. I mean, some of these reforms, you know, do take time to play out. And so hopefully, you know, over five or six years, you would be able to see the effect of the reforms more clearly and people would realize it. So, those, so, so some of those long-term things should kick in, but they've need, they just need to do a lot more on the, uh, on really on the economic side. And it's not that they need to, you know, recognize some deal with China. That isn't, that isn't the problem. It's much more structural, um, you know, how to raise wages and things like this. So these things do take time, but if they start to work on them hard and it pays off over a few years, then they will be successful. Mm-hmm. Well, in your opinion, given the current situation, do you think that President Chai Ing-wen will be nominated for the 2020 presidential election by the DPP? Oh, I think that's more or less just pure speculation that she wouldn't be. I mean, it, it's highly unlikely that, that, that an incumbent president would be challenged. I mean, that's, it's possible, but I think she would have to have a more directly personal mistake than, uh, than just sort of generally, than the sort of general dissatisfaction. So I think it's highly unlikely at this point. Mm-hmm. She see no indicator of that, but of course the rumor mills are spinning wildly about it. But I think that's just unwarranted, actually. Yeah. Mm-hmm. She's resigned uh, as the chairperson of the DPP. Who yeah. do you think is likely to take her place? Oh, I have no idea. I hope it's a sort of open election. I mean, they'll have somebody temporarily taking her place today, but that's just uh, that's just sort of uh, a temporary thing, and that'll be done quickly today. Um, but the uh, the, the chairman's election, which isn't even scheduled yet, but I suppose it'll be somewhere in January or something. Um, I would hope that there's sort of an open contest, uh, you know, and we get to put out two or three different visions of the party and let the party members really have a serious debate about where they want to go. That's my hope. But, you know, some people would say, oh, no, we better not. We better, you know, paper over our differences and put out one consensus candidate. I'd be, I think that's a missed opportunity if they do that. But, yes. I mean, you know, obviously it would save time and effort in the short run, but I think it's a missed opportunity to plan for the long-term future of the party. So I think the government, also the DPP, should try to communicate more with the public in the future, whoever is elected to be the chairperson. Right. And we've been joined on the phone today by Bo Tedders, the Director of International Cooperation Department of Taiwan Democracy Foundation. And that's it for this week's On The Line, brought to you by Radio Taiwan International. I'm Carlson Wong. Thank you for listening to us next week. Take goodbye.
Thank you for listening to Radio Taiwan International, broadcasting from Taipei, Taiwan. Check out our website at english.rti.org.tw. Again, that's english.rti.org.tw for the latest news and features from Taiwan. You can also listen to our programs and watch videos as well. Our 60-minute English language program can also be heard every day at the following times and frequencies. In southern China and South Asia from 1600 to 1700 UTC on 6180 kHz. Again, that's in southern China and South Asia from 1600 to 1700 UTC on 6180 kHz. And in Southeast Asia from 0300 to 0400 UTC on 15320 kHz. Again, that's in Southeast Asia from 0300 to 0400 UTC on 15320 kHz. We'd love to hear from you. Please send your comments to P.O. Box 123-199, Taipei, Taiwan. Again, that's P.O. Box 123-199, Taipei, Taiwan. Or send an email to rti at rti.org.tw. Again, that's rti at rti.org.tw. Also visit us on Facebook. The address is fb.me forward slash Radio Taiwan International. Once again, on Facebook, we're located at fb.me forward slash Radio Taiwan International for videos, photos, and news of interest from Taiwan. Thank you once again for listening to Radio Taiwan International.